Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 26. We hope you're all safe and well. This episode will mainly be an interview conducted by our co-host Daniel with two comrades from the Angry Workers, a revolutionary collective whose activists have, for the past six years, been involved in workplace and community organising in the supermarket, food distribution and logistics industry in West London. Their experiences and the possible lessons to draw from them are documented in their new book, Class Power on Zero Hours, available now to buy from PM Press. We'll put a link to the book in the episode description. We've discussed the logistics sector as a strategically significant site of class struggle on this podcast before, particularly in our 10th episode, which was an interview with Kim Moody about his book On New Terrain, which also deals with this issue. You may want to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. The two comrades we interviewed work in a food packaging factory and as a delivery driver at a Tesco warehouse. Although coronavirus is only referred to briefly in the interview, the pandemic has thrown up all sorts of questions about how these key arteries of production and distribution function in our society. The Angry Workers' organising experiences are also interesting in that they were undertaken consciously as an effort of political work, as in the comrades deliberately chose to get jobs in particular industries and in a particular community because they deemed that doing so was strategically important. That's an approach that has a long history in the labour movement. The angry workers come from a particular political tradition, which we at Labour Days don't entirely share. So we wouldn't necessarily endorse all aspects of their approach. However, the interview is not set up as a debate. Instead, we wanted to present it as a brief account of what we feel is an impressive, important and valuable experience of workplace organising that other working class activists, regardless of their particular politics, can learn from. The comrades have invited critical reviews of and responses to their book from the wider movement. So if you want to contribute to that debate in writing, we encourage you to read the book and write a response. So with that introduction out of the way, here's the interview. Thanks for joining us, comrades. Um, I guess the first question I wanted to ask um, was whether you could just give a sort of brief description of um, the Angry Workers Project. Yeah, um... Basically, started about six years ago. We decided to move to towards West London, the outskirts, the suburbs, and that was like um, more or less a strategical decision to uh, base our politics in a in a location where there are bigger workplaces uh, that is dominated by logistics, mainly around the airport, uh, A40, the M4, the so-called Western Corridor. Um, where about yeah, 60% of London's food is either processed or packaged or redistributed. And we knew that it was, um, let's say, an area dominated by migrant labor, uh, especially like lower-skilled, so-called lower-skilled migrant labor. So there was a tension between, on one hand, uh, individual situation of, you know, especially with Brexit, um, of um, yeah, being, being quiet in a, in a vulnerable situation, and collectively, at least potentially, in a very powerful one due to the structure of the industry. So um, we thought we would 
base our our political work there, mainly inspired by the um, migrant workers strikes and logistics in Italy that um, we heard of and we visited at the time. So that was the initial uh, impetus for us to move towards West London. That was six years ago. Um, from then on, it was less about workers organizing as such and more like in trying to create an exemplary or experimental uh, political cell, being, meaning uh, we try to um, address at least four levels of organization um, from scratch. So we thought like for, for working class politics and for an independent political expression of the working class, we really have to start uh, on, the, on, the, on the bottom rung really from scratch. So how did we try to do that? Um, we knew that in the area due to the migrant workers composition, uh, it would be important to address also a lot of the issues that come up uh, outside of workplaces, for example, um, with migration office, with the job center, with landlords. So we set up a um, solidarity network, um, basically kind of weekly drop-ins where people could come. We had posters and things. Um, as the first kind of layer of organization, um, the, the political idea was very basic. Uh, there are a lot of middlemen in the community, either like uh, legal experts, religious leaders, bosses, political kind of uh, middlemen who take advantage of the migrant uh, situation of the newly arrived migrants, mainly Eastern Europe and uh, South Asia. And we wanted to say we, we first have no financial interest when we support each other, nor do we have like, a, let's say, um, an expert status. We are workers. And in this situation, wherever we come from, uh, if we're Eastern Europeans or South Asians, we are all workers and we support each other with these problems. So that was the initial um, thought behind it. Also knowing that um, traditionally, let's say, the, the most marginalized sections of the working class is often instrumentalized by the middle class, mm -hmm. uh, often against, against organized labor. So that was a, the, the bottom rung uh, level of organization. But we knew from experience that these solidarity networks tend to get very um, individualized uh, around individual cases. So we always try to open the door to the workplaces in the areas and some of the individual cases actually opened the door, especially of, uh, let's say, Punjabi truck drivers who first worked for small companies and then got into like um, multinational corporations around the airport. So it was like a way to also get um, uh, to know the area and to, to, to get um, some contacts in workplaces where we didn't work. We ourselves started to work in bigger workplaces, mainly in uh, retail distribution and food processing. So that was the second layer of organization, which is central for us, which is the workplace, the organic place where workers have collective power, um, where they come together and they have to deal with each other if they don't like each other's uh, skin color or not, or if they speak the same language or not. Once you work together, you have to get along and normally you do. So for us, the workplace was central. And we try to create a dynamic between the solidarity network and the workplace um, and hope that, you know, initially the, the, the network of the solidarity network could also support uh, initial initiatives um, at the, in the workplaces. 
uh, given the, the quite difficult situation there. Um, when it comes to the workplace, our position was uh, we don't go in with prefigured ideas about how to organize and things. We, we, we come in with an approach of inquiry, meaning workers, we have to analyze our situation here. Uh, how is the work process organized? In what kind of situation is the company? How are we organized already? And based on that, we can take collective steps. And workers have to, organ um, let's say, analyze together or get used to analyze together the legal situation as well, uh, the union as one kind of contradictory um, tool that workers might have, but also confront. So, you know, we had various kind of situations where, in, in, for example, in, in situations where we worked as temp workers, um, we, all right, okay, uh, we, we decided to go into an informal way of organizing because the union was only representing the permanence. In other situations, we decided to become shop stewards of mainstream unions and try to organize that. So that's the second layer of organization. The third layer is our newspaper. We try to reflect on this experience in a newspaper that we distributed 2,000 copies in the area, where we also put forward a political position, which is one of um, we need a different society and we have to basically we, we need a revolution to um, to achieve it. Kind of very kind of um, uh, condensed, but like in a in a language that we thought uh, workers can relate to, um, also an internationalist point of view when it comes to Brexit and all these kind of things. So we try to confront the daily experience in that newspaper with a political position. And the fourth layer was like to basically build a political collective through debate, self-education, um, make an extra effort to um, visit comrades and workers abroad. Uh, we went to Labor Notes Conference in the US or like uh, visited migrant um, uh, workers militants in Italy and basically give the whole thing a cohesion and, and a direction. So especially also in a situation in the UK that was dominated by electoral politics, by, by the whole Labour thing, we thought we, we need a programmatic debate and therefore that somehow has to come out of the process of organization as well. Uh, the workers that we meet, um, we, we need some form of uh, politics that really relate to the day-to-day -day and, and a wider um, internationalist point of view. I was going to ask a sort of um, uh, question that was kind of specific to the like workplace environment that I think... Um, people who listen to the podcast will probably be quite interested in because we've um, we've done episodes focusing on the logistics and distribution sector before. We did an interview with Kim Moody about his book. Um, and um, one sort of supplementary question I think I wanted to ask about that is whether you could say a little bit just about the kind of dynamics in the workplace itself. Like how is work organised in these workplaces? Um, what were your personal experiences of being workers in the sector um, what's the kind of industrial infrastructure like and and maybe you could kind of draw out a little bit why quite why it is so strategically significant to the contemporary capitalist economy mm -hmm. um, so when we started working here the first thing that we noticed was there was a lot of um, agency work um, so in the first distribution centre we worked in in Sainsbury's it was kind of 70% agency workers and if you look around Greenford there's all the kind of signs up um, promoting um, 
agency agency labor so a lot of the new migrants when they come um, their first kind of point of call is to sign up with a few of these agencies and then they kind of circulate around a few of the bigger workplaces in the area so you always kind of meet people who have worked in in the same places that you have and they also kind of tend to live in that area um, so that brings with it you know a lot of challenges because normally um, the turnover is higher um, if you're an agency worker um, and that's something that you have to kind of grapple with in, if you're kind of trying to organize with your co-workers um, you know you can't the kind of traditional idea of having to like slowly build up um, a presence and you know you're there for kind of years trying to you know build up your workforce and kind of change the culture in a place can't really apply so well in the situation where people are staying for six months um, so and, and also I think kind of the union the bigger trade unions have not really you know been able to to deal with that question so when we actually started at Sainsbury's we joined Unite because they were present in the workplace but they only represented um, permanent workers um, and they weren't really interested in anything that the tent workers were doing but obviously in that situation with 70% of us uh, being agency workers the flip side is that you maybe don't feel um, so uh, committed to the job you know and you're more likely to be able to take a risk so the question is at what point do you think you can do something um, you know in a limited time frame so when we worked in the Sainsbury's warehouse we did do a um, a slowdown which was um, which was very effective and we write about that um, in the book um, but yeah that's kind of one thing that we have to deal with that division between the temp and permanent workers is a kind of point of tension mm -hmm. um, one point of tension is there's that competition because maybe the agency people want to get a permanent job um, so that kind of um, increases the pressure of work because in these kinds of jobs there's a lot of um, performance targets so you're kind of running around with the scanner um, a bit like what people have heard about in Amazon you yeah. know like you, you've got targets to reach and you're also in competition with each other so also in that Sainsbury's job they did a, um, a kind of league table so it would measure your productivity and if at the end of the day, you were at the bottom of that list, and they would, they would produce this list and publish it every day on the notice board. Um, it meant you were more likely to have your shift cancelled if they needed less people. You know, so there's a very kind of um, stressful mm -hmm. atmosphere that you know you need to kind of break because having a kind of unity in that situation is is most needed. But you know, that's a kind of big barrier that you have to um, you have to confront. Can I add something to that? Yeah. Yeah, and I think also when it comes to the union position there, I mean, we were the only temp workers who joined uh, Unite. They didn't have much of an interest. And I think it's also something to do with the fact that the, the wage difference between temps and uh, permanents was very quite extreme, like over two pounds, I think, per hour. And I think Unite was just ha happy to have a recognition there, uh, to to have, uh, let's say, annual wage increase for the permanents, the permanents stick with them, and they were kind of, they were quite happy with that situation. So although they had only, let's say, 40, 30, 40 percent their uh, membership, they knew, first of all, like, to, to risk their position by by supporting like temp workers would you know would, would not make sense uh, from from their own organizational point of view. So, so they also didn't represent us 
when we had the disciplinaries in the end for the slowdown. But saying that, I mean, some workplaces, the, the pay difference between permanents and agency workers is really small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, so in terms of conditions um, and pay, there's not much difference. The, the kind of the difference is kind of in your head, you know, like workers themselves kind of make that distinction of like, oh, I'm agency, so I'm not part of this. Yeah. Um, whatever you're doing, whatever your pay campaign is, or if you're trying to organise, they kind of see themselves as separate. And so, you know, be kind of, you'd have to make that point of like, well, that's just imposed on us, this separation, but actually we're all working together, we're the same. Sure. Um, and in terms of power, I mean, this uh, specific distribution centre, I mean, it was mainly run by temp workers through a logistics company, not even Sainsbury's Direct, but they, they delivered the stuff for about 200 roughly like convenience stores all over London. So, I mean, that's quite a central node in the in the supply for, for the supermarket. Yeah. And based on a very precarious situation. What, so what kind of... Sorry, what kind of numbers, just, just to give a sense of, of kind of the scale, what kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of um, people in these workplaces? Um, hundreds. I mean, probably up to about... 500, I would say, yeah. like, in the warehouse plus how many truck drivers? Uh, about 100 drivers. 100 truck drivers. But in other places, like in the food factory that I worked in, it was more like, um, you know, up to 1,000 people. Yeah. You know, so it kind of varies, but we would um, we would make the choice of going into the workplaces with the most number of people, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in the small workplaces around. But, uh, but also just to say, I mean, with food, um, retail and distribution, obviously there's like these huge supply chains where you've got, where you're linked to workers um, who are, agri- you know, doing the agriculture work in Spain, yeah. making the vegetables that are then coming to distribution centers here and then it's being processed packaged whatever and go to the supermarkets and then you've got the link to the supermarket workers so in terms of kind of the bigger picture um you know you're in touch with a lot of potentially a lot of other workers along the supply chain yeah Yeah. um just to ask a follow-up question on on that then around the um around the issue of kind of organization um i don't want to kind of dive too deeply into the debate about the extent to which the sort of existing labour movement is a, a, a primary terrain for struggle and so on. Um, but I just I just wanted to um, get some further thoughts from you about um, what your wider perspective for how workers can be organised across that supply chain might look like. And on, on the podcast, I think it's fair to say we, we've tried to advance, I guess what you'd call a sort of rank and fileist industrial unionist perspective, um, where we would see um, the kind of model of organisation that you'd aspire to as being a sort of industrial union model organise organising workers um, right through that industrial supply chain. What's your view on that? What's what's the best way that workers at, at different points or, or, or um, workplaces along that supply chain can um, unite and assert their power together? Well, in a kind of ideal world, you would have groups of workers who were super organised in their own workplace being able to do more than just a kind of symbolic solidarity action to support workers in other positions along that supply chain. So at the moment, that's what we've got. I mean, when we did our um, pay campaign at the food factory, 
um, at, at the same time, agricultural workers in Almeria who supplied vegetables to that factory were also doing a, a kind of um, pay demand right. for more money. So we did a kind of symbolic thing, like during our protest, we did a, a, a placard or whatever to support them and send them a picture. And that's generally like how things uh -huh. are operating, you know. But the question is, how do you make it more than a solidarity action? And there sure. you have to really kind of go back to basics and actually have a super organised workplace um, to be able to actually enforce um, some kind of support that actually makes an economic impact. And the situation from our experience is that we're really far away yeah. from this. You know, so this kind of going back to basics and actually saying, look, we need to, yeah, it's good to kind of show workers that, you know, we're doing something, you're doing something, you know, let's be in touch. But in order to actually make that connection um, a powerful force that can turn the tables on the employer, you would need to be able to enforce those, enforce your demands. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, which, yeah. Which is also, like, it's not just about like the, uh, being organized in terms of just numbers of power. It's also like a political question. I mean, the workers would have to see that it's uh, important that they reach out to workers along the supply chain, which is not always like, you know, that's not the most obvious thing necessarily. I mean, uh, what we see now, for example, in the case of Amazon, we see an international network that is basically rank and fire, but not like necessarily of the former unions. Um, but they have got like international meetings. There are like there's an exchange. There are initial um, solidarity actions beyond symbolism. For example, when uh, Amazon workers in Germany went on strike, um, the Polish, I mean, workers in Poland at Amazon uh, went on a on a slowdown and and refused uh, overtime. So, uh, because like Amazon was using the Polish uh, warehouses to break the strike, basically or undermine the strike. So we see initial initial like um, you know kind of embers of that. How do you say? Yeah. Embryonic, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Embryonic stuff, yeah. And um, yeah, I think. That's, 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 yeah, that's a challenge. Somewhere. I mean, our kind of main focus, I guess, um, our kind of main guiding principle is that workers need to have or need to build their own kind of independent structures and own decision-making. And then you can, from that point where you've got a group of workers together saying, okay, we're discussing together, no, what are we doing, what do we want to do? And then what tools can we use in order to do that? And those tools could be the union. Yeah. Or it could be like, you know, oh, this MP can support us for this campaign or whatever. But it shouldn't be um, relinquishing your power over to these institutions, which are kind of, you know, hierarchical and they've got their own limitations and whatever. Um, but, yeah, how, how do you retain that independence? How do you um, build confidence amongst workers and, and retain that? you know, in, in whatever you decide to do going forward. Sure. Um, wonder if you could say a little bit um, about your experiences as um, shop stewards. Um, again, I think um, most of the people listening to the podcast are um, people who are um, reps and activists and stewards of various types in, you know, what, what we might call mainstream unions. So I think they'd be interested in that experience just to kind of hear about it. And then 
Um, maybe, maybe if you could say a bit about what um, lessons you take from that experience for how um, radicals and rank and vilists and re- kind of revolutionaries of various types might organise in a sort of insurgent and oppositional way inside um, mainstream trade unions. We write extensively about our shop steward experiences in the book, um, but for now we can say, yeah, the the experiences were not so good. Um, although, you know, we pushed it as much as we could, you know. And in the case of the food factory that I was working in, the pay campaign and that we that we ran for one pound more an hour for minimum wage workers um, was the first time that we run such a campaign, and we got quite close to a strike ballot, which was the furthest we've ever got, and. That only was really possible within the union structure at that time because of the confidence of the workers, which was very low, um, you know, and also a relatively high density of union um, membership in that workplace. It was like, okay, um, there's there's also a new union official that came in who was kind of quite gung-ho and wanted to do something. So some space opened up within the within the union to be able to do something um but i'd say in the two years that i was a rep there um the main kind of stresses and arguments that i had was like within that union framework always having to kind of try and push to get things done get other reps to support you um I mean, if if we had a really good rep team, let's say, who were all kind of quite militant and up for the up for the fight, things might have turned out a bit differently. But I'd say the general situation in a lot of these workplaces is that most of the reps are not like that. Mm-hmm. So do you spend a lot of time and energy into trying to convince these people that they should be doing this and that, um, or do you focus more on trying to get groups of workers who are not reps? Um, to maybe try and get involved and, and do something and build up a kind of parallel structure where you can, um, yeah, push things forward. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was quite stressful in the end. These kind of uh, management, in the management in these type of companies are really vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, like, people saw a couple of weeks ago in The Guardian, the factory manager in my old workplace was secretly recorded threatening workers um, with the sack if they hadn't if they didn't come into work and like almost 50% of workers at one point were off sick because there were no measures to protect them against coronavirus um, and yeah I mean this is it was just wasn't surprising they're just awful and even though they're kind of sucking us dry like all of the time it's just never enough you know like there's a real feeling they can get away with whatever they want to because people don't speak English and, you know, people haven't really challenged them, you know? Because mm-hmm. you really do need to be quite fierce and speak good English and, like, know your shit to kind of really push back against what they try and do individually and collectively against workers. Um, so that is a real problem because, obviously, in a migrant kind of workforce where the English is, is not so good, how do you build up? that kind of rep structure to actually make those challenges and in turn increase the confidence of workers that actually something can be done because, you know, demoralisation was the biggest um, kind of barrier there. Yeah, but I would also add, I mean, maybe to get the bigger picture a bit, I mean, we talk about uh, four food factories of the same company in in an area where GMB had recognition for about 12 years uh, the line workers, mainly female workers, are now still like only eight 
P or something over the minimum wage after 12 years of having the, the union. Well, actually, now it's just minimum wage because oh, the, 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 the pay increase that they got was to, with the pay campaign was overridden by the increase in the national yeah. minimum wage. Yeah. And then people are like, well, what's the point of having a bloody union? Yeah, yeah so that, that's, that's, that's one part. But I wanted to talk a bit more structurally. I mean, how the, the, the people who became reps where they're longer time, they tend to be supervisors, they tend to have a bit of a patriarchal influence within the so-called community. Um, so they they have a kind of, you know, also f uh, family relations and things. So it was like a, a mixture of like, you know, supervisory kind of uh, paternalistic kind of approach uh, from the reps. They themselves rigged the, the rep elections, so basically telling the women who to vote for. At the same time, the union agreed to um, skill payment where the line workers are, are deemed unskilled and, and mainly female work and the men who bring the stuff to the assembly lines is kind of semi-skilled. So it, it kind of, you know, got the con uh, you know, consent more or less from some of the male workers. So in that situation, to break that, I mean, we thought we need an independent, so we had an independent uh, factory bulletin, like a newsletter, and that was important. And we always said to the workers, listen, uh, if in this pay campaign ask the union to do this and that and if the union is not doing it we have to do it ourselves that was somehow our line and um, to, to have a one pound demand for all um, disregarding the so-called uh, skill level was another political decision there when I talk about my own workplace I worked in a, a distribution center or a fulfillment center as they call it now uh, for Tesco about 1,400 workers um, I decided, because I was a driver, to become a union rep to get to know more people, especially in the in pig and in the, uh, amongst the loaders, which was difficult as a driver. In that regard, it was a good decision because actually I, I, I got to know people better. Um, but in all other regards, it was like disastrous. If Especially if we look like Astor and Tesco in the sense like it's quite an outstanding uh, situation with the partnership agreement sure. and things. Meaning the usual thing that you have as a union rep, meaning a union board or potentially a newsletter is taken out of your hands. Yeah. Also by the union itself. So I basically burned myself. I thought we could, for example, have a union newsletter that uh, is, is basically has got an independent function through the union, and we didn't have one, let's say, uh, independently, and it, I burned myself there by just proposing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about why, why the, the union <laughs> Tesco is another vehicle of workers' power, but I think people know a bit about that situation. Sure. And in terms of um, lessons, yeah, um, we would say, you know, you can actually do quite a lot with a few people. I mean, there are only kind of a few of us. Um, and we managed to still do quite a lot. You know, we didn't need require any funding or whatever. You just kind of need a printer, and it was you know pretty DIY. Yep. But I think you know you get to know some people. You kind of do some actions. You get a kind of bigger circle of people who are willing to help. And yeah, we managed to get contacts in. You know, like twenty, thirty different workplaces. Um, got to know some local people. We were involved in local campaigns. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of the kind of yeah, a lot of thing people say is like yeah, you know, we don't have capacity to do that, we don't have capacity to do that, but you know, you can you can do quite a lot. Is one thing, and another um, 
Okay, you do your stairs Well, no, go ahead. Um, yeah, a kind of another lesson is, you know, something that Marco kind of touched on at the beginning is this um, notion of communities and community leaders. Yeah. And a lot of unions like um, UVW or IWGB or whatever, you know, they, they will use that to their advantage. You know, you've got a kind of, as I say, Latin American workers who all already have a bit of an experience from home of fighting, um, who kind of live in the same areas, who kind of work in the same industries, and there's a, you know, they they use that kind of um, organic relationships or whatever to their advantage, and you know you have a kind of strong cohesive um, force there who are willing to take on the bosses. You know they have they trust each other, so you can see why it's kind of tempting to. Um, to do that but in our experience um you know the kind of class divisions within those communities are a real stumbling block you know for many workers to to come together so we have you know quite a strong critique of that you know community stuff we think you kind of have to to break it and also this thing about organic leaders finding the organic leaders in the workplace Mm. um you know a lot of the people that we came across that would be considered organic leaders um, were just, they'd already been bought by the company, you know, like right. there's a reason somehow that they're in that position where people look up to them, maybe their English is a bit better, maybe they've got the ear of the manager more, you know, so that's why people have a kind of dependent relationship on them. But, you know, wasting your effort trying to kind of buy these people and trying to get them on your side is just like a waste of time. Yeah, um, no, I think uh, there, there were, you know, important lessons and also like uh, when when it comes to migration and all the Brexit debate, I mean, people say like, oh, migrants or migration is not a reason for, you know, uh, low wages and things that, that in, in, in general, that might be true. At the same time, especially if migrants, you know, don't come from regions where there is a history of class struggle, a recent history, like in, let's say, Latin America or Northern Africa, uh, then I think, the, for example, the language problems and all that really pose a problem for organizing. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the impact um, that it has on day-to-day organizing. I mean, we, you know, it's kind of one thing to say, yeah, obviously we defend, um, you know, the any kind of attacks on, on uh, migrant workers and, uh, you know, any attempts to close borders and all that. But if we at the same time are not very aware of the challenges that come with it, then I think it, uh, that would be politically disastrous. So we, we, we really kind of notice that we have to translate lords, you know, into Gujarati, Tamil, in various languages, Polish, yeah. Eastern languages. So we have to take on that responsibility then as well, I think. Um. Great, Th- thanks very much. I mean, I, I think we can probably begin to um, sort of wrap up. So just maybe in conclusion, do you want to say a little bit um, a- about the book, uh, where people can get it? Um, yeah, so um, you can get it on the PM Press website. Um, it costs £9, £3 post and packaging. If you order 10 copies, you get a discount. Um, and yeah, it's like 400 pages, so it's you get you get you get your, you money. get your money's worth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot of paper, a lot of 
Oh, and, you know, it's, it's quite good because, you know, we talk about our kind of political proposal, about the layers of organisation, how we think an organisation needs to respond to changes in the class um, and changes in capitalism. We go in depth about our experiences at work um, and also to do a kind of wider exposition of like food in capitalism and how that is organised. Um, and we end with some kind of more strategic proposal. So whatever you're interested in, there's, there's something for you there. Yeah, and I would I would add like um, we we stick to the communist manifesto and the main uh, point there when it comes to organization, meaning we don't have any interest apart from from the working class. What that means for us is we don't have to say that oh we were very successful and victorious in our organizing we can afford to really be self-critical because we don't have to sell anyone anything so we don't have to portray a kind of let's say our organization although we want to build one we don't have to portray it as automatically you know the best and victorious so it is very kind of self-critical and you can really learn a lot about the difficulties if you want to start from scratch um, yeah, I think that's that's the strongest point, really. Great. So you, you don't you don't have anything to sell to anyone except for the, a few copies of the book. We hope. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, um, I think we can wrap it up there. Th thanks. Thanks very much again um, for doing this, comrades, and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. So you've just heard Daniel interviewing two comrades from the Angry Workers. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, check out the episode description for details on where to buy their book. Um, we'll also put in the description uh, online resources from groups like uh, the Coronavirus Workforce Support Group, the Safe and Equal Campaign, Hazards Magazine, Blacklist Support Group, Nurses United, Zero Hours Justice and others who are all distributing useful material around workers' rights, including the right to refuse to work in unsafe conditions, uh, as the government seems to be uh, going down the road of uh, pushing more people back into the workplace. Uh, we're seeing, obviously, the teaching unions uh, uh, resisting that at the moment and uh, saying that their members uh, don't want to go back until they have uh, various uh, assurances around health and safety. Uh, we've also seen uh, the government's proposed uh, two-year pay freeze for public sector workers, which really, uh, speaking as, as a public sector worker, really feels like a, an extra slap in the face at the moment. And uh, I do hope that the uh, the unions in the public sector push back against that and, uh, and ask for a proper pay rise for uh, all the workers that are that are doing so much at the moment and uh, everyone else who hasn't really had a proper pay rise for best part of a decade now if not longer um we'll be back soon uh, with more about the uh, union response to the pandemic and other issues uh, until then uh, please stay safe uh, and we'll see you soon thanks for listening <laughs>